Hello and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brittany Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 119th episode of the Nauticast titled We the People Part 1, an analysis of a Clash of Kings Tyrion 9 in which Princess Marcella leaves for Dorne. Oh, yeah, and the uh, city erupts into violence as Joffrey finally goes too far. But really, guys, mostly this chapter is about the Dorne thing. In Tyrion's diary, that's all he writes down. Princess Marcella left for Dorne, nothing else of importance. Right. I mean, you have to color the history in the way that best benefits your memory, right? Exactly. And I think that's a great way to... Yes, Marcella was dispatched to Dorne, and then I write back in the right keep right after that. Yes. History is written by the winners, and Tyrion is, of course, a winner, as we all know. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council. Our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Troubleshooter of Systems, the Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N, Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Captain of the War Galley, Nightwolf, the ship that stalks the seven seas and wielder of the Valyrian Steel Trident Summoner, the blade that brings the Deep Ones, Sir Keith J, Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archspacer June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Rackin' Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, Ward of the West, the Herald of the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bane Ford, the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gem that was promised, the High Bearded Priest, Lord Jake Assistant to the Hand of the King, Ladies of Lyrian, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, and Prince Bragar Targaryen's Sad Prophecy Boys Club. His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, War of the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Adamus, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sorcedelica, Prince Matthew of House Targaryen, Proud, Soy Boy of Summerhall, Defender of the Fifth Book, and Swing Dancer with Dragons, Sir K.W. Dent, Elsie the Blackwood Guard, and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alice, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies and Gentle Thems, Lord Quint Esquire, Master of Absolutely Possibly, not serving as a spy for, for several unnamed high lords and ladies in order to further the secret Blackfire-style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive small council. Haldiver, the way for T-Wow, A.A. Braun, Damp Hair, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron, Crow's Eye. Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Colgarian, the First of Her Name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overwork, Queen of the Petzels, the Eraser, the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee the Great, Devotee the Great Game of Thrones, Portraits of the Realm, Lady Real Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawings. Shomal the Slayer, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpio of the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Lady Ashley, the Dead Shepherd Born preacher of the poor fellows, Marshall Harrison, still absent, still shipwrecked, still shipwrecked in the Jade Sea. Grave Rob Stark, the, the cadaver king and horror of Harren Hall. Olaf, proponent of establishing a feudal pseudo democratic system of great councils wherein every count votes. Sir Tim, the knight who is guided by voices. Lord Nick, the city's Lord of Plagues. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen's Sad Prophecy Boys Club. Lord Jean the Splendid, Master of Coin, Ward of Tampa Bay. Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan. Pit. Pat Ironwood, the Blood Royal and Guardian of the Boneway. Lord Charles Tyrell of Highgarden. Lord Paramount, the, Ma- uh, Lord Paramount the Mander, Defender of the Marches, High Marshal of the Reach, War of the South, and the Heir of House Tyrell. Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn. Thank you to our small counselors very much. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler as we say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan novels, histories, interviews, the Windsor Sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from one of our small council patrons, Lord Micah, Warden of the West and the Kraken's Bane, who asks, here's an AU for a future episode. 
What changes for the War of Five Kings if Horus and Haber Redwine, for some reason, never went to King's Landing in A Game of Thrones, thus giving Renly a Redwine fleet that could be used? Does he attack Dragonstone with it? Does he have time? Does the fleet take Dragonstone for the Lannisters much sooner than a Feast for Crows after Renly's death? So what do you think about that, Jeff? What happens if Horror and Slobber never get to King's Landing and Paxter Redwine has a free hand to act? I think Paxter Redwine obviously joins up with the Tyrell cause. I think the only reason that he is being left behind is that he is a, obviously his two sons are being held hostage by the Lannisters and he's aware that they're, his, him siding with his banner, uh, with his, his leader would, would mean that they're likely deaths. Um, what happens in that AU situation, if that happens, then Renly gets the Redwine fleet and it gets used probably... I don't know. The timing of it all is kind of weird. I, I th- here's the here's the thing about it. It's like I don't see where it actually impacts anything like Renly's death, the taking of Storms, and this Battle of the Blackwater. Maybe even because this fleet takes a long ass time to get from the, from the uh, from the Arbor all the way over to King's Landing in a Storm of Swords. Like it takes like the entirety of the book. And by the time they reach King's Landing, like right at the start of Feast for Crows, they immediately have to turn around and start and sail back to Dragonstone because Euron attacks the the Arbor and attacks the Reach. So Lord Redwine then sails back and is still sails starting in a Feast for Crows. Moving through a dance with dragons, still not there in the winds of winter in the Forsaken. Still has, I think, it's mentioned in the Forsaken, uh, which we'll be covering next uh, in just a few weeks for part three. Is that Lord Redwine's flea has actually just finally turned the Arm of Dorne at whatever point this is in the winds of winter, but it's pretty far in the timeline. So the fleets don't actually sail that quickly. Um, I, I could see a situation where it has an impact on post battle Blackwater water stuff, but again, it's hard to say what that impact would be beyond, I guess, Stannis would be sincerely and truly fucked before he even has the chance to to get north to to the wall. So I think that's kind of the outlines of what I would see if the Red Wine fleet was actively engaged in the War of the Five Kings at this time. But yeah, all good and well. What do you think, sir? Well, I think right there, I think you hit on one reason why George has to give the Red Wine fleet out of commission for so long, because he doesn't want Stannis to lose this early right. in the fight. And if, if the Lannisters have a giant fleet easily at their disposal, Stannis doesn't last long enough in the Storm of Swords to get to the wall. And potentially we see a reason in the Winds of Winter that you know, George wants Euron, someone to take out and prove his powers on on his way to Old Town, and the, the Red Wine fleet is conveniently there for that purpose. Yeah, I think everything would, would depend on where the Red Wine fleet was when Stannis laid siege to Storm's End and when Renly showed up to deal with Stannis and how the Red Wine fleet reacted afterwards. Because if Paxter Redwine's on hand when Stannis kills Renly at Storm's End, then if he he potentially joins Stannis, I'm not sure how yeah. much of an impact that has on the Battle of Blackwater. You know, I'm not you know deep into the weeds on the on, on the naval uh, strategy of it. So me neither. Uh, so I, obviously, you know, Tyrion's plan delays just long enough. But I'm not you know that th- that could be interesting to see. But yeah, I think it's the Red Wine fleet is this interesting. Uh, kind of just pawn to move around the board for George because I, I think he's clearly kept it in reserve in the same way that the armies of the Vale have been kept kept mm-hmm. in reserve just for George to use on one of a number of purposes and I think we're starting to see those shape up now. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And uh, just as a side note, uh, some friends of mine, um, Jen Snow from Reddit, Adam Feldman also from Reddit, a couple of years ago, they they did the Massive Song of Ice and Fire timeline, uh, if you guys have read that on, on Google Documents. And one of the ways that you actually use it actually to time things is where the Redmine fleet is in relation to how character beats and character movements are, are operating. So it is a interesting weird way that you can actually calculate distance and time and when things are actually timed in the narrative overall. But yeah, I think obviously the, the red wine fleet is, is there to be a stumbling block for someone down the road or to potentially be dead meat for Euron Greyjoy. I mean, it could be at the same, both at the same time, but yeah, you can't have the red wines entering the battle 
the, the war too soon or else it's over for stance without it being a chance. And you all of the narrative tension then gets drained away from that actual event itself, which is uh, quite the uh, the cinematic climax to A Clash of Kings. And we are not that far from that, that event from in this book. I'm very excited about getting to that. All the pieces are really moving into place for the Battle of Blackwater. And that's, that's going to be a, a prime highlight for us for sure. No question about mm-hmm. that. So thank you, Lord Micah, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we answer here on the Natacast podcast. You're com- you are welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash Natacast A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can get show notes, access to our Nata Slack for our two highest tiers, and bonus episodes like our first two parts of The Second Coming, our full analysis of the Winds of Winter chapter, The Forsaken. And we will be back to record next week, uh, part three of The Second Coming. If that or any any other Patreon benefits interest you, consider heading on over to patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf to join up. Yes, and we just hit a thousand, over a thousand total patrons this this week, and we're very grateful and gratified to all of you who are supporting us. Many of you are in the chat itself or our live stream, and we appreciate you all very, very much and all of your support every single month. It means a lot. And thank you also to all the messages we received on Patreon. We've gotten a lot recently. I just figured I would just shout out some of the the ones who that we've gotten. We've gotten some from Anna, Lorena, Lord Charles, Tyrell of Highgarden, one of our small council people. The city's also Lord of Plagues, one of our small council folks. Caitlin, Luke, and Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn. We appreciate all of your guys' messages. And even if we can't respond immediately, uh, we it means a lot to us. We really, really appreciate that and all of your encouragement and passion. It's great. Thank you so much. But enough about Patreon. When we last hung out with Tyrion, he had hosted a small council session in which Littlefinger was dispatched to arrange the Tyrell-Lannister marriage alliance while the stability of King's Landing hung on a knife's edge. Let's find out how Joffrey nearly gets his ass knifed in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 9. The girl never wept. Young as she was, Marcella Baratheon was a princess born and a Lannister despite her name. Tyrion reminded himself as much Jamie's blood as Cersei's. To be sure, her smile was a shade tremulous when her brothers took their leave of her on the deck of the suite of the Sea Swift. But the girl knew the proper words to say, and she said them with courage and dignity. When the time came to part, it was Prince Tommen who cried and Marcella who gave him comfort. Man, Emmett, what a lovely start to this chapter. Just remember this moment. Hold on to it, because it's going to be the happiest fucking moment of this chapter. From atop the decks of King Robert's Warhammer, Tyrion looks down at the parting at the parting ceremony, ruefully wondering about whether it's all that smart to be sending this ship along with three other ships to escort Marcella to Bravos. Wait, Marcella is going to Bravos? Yes, it's convoluted, but let's simplify it here for this synopsis. They're heading off to Bravos first, going to wait there for a bit, and then sail down to Dorne. If Stannis was monitoring the seas, he would never suspect that they'd spent that they'd send Marcella to Bravos first before they went to Dorne. And Tyrion hopes that Stannis wouldn't risk the Sea Lord of Bravos's wrath by stashing Marcella there for a little while before they went down to Dorne. Got it? Okay, good. Tyrion asks their captain if he knows their orders, and the man does. They're going to sail, avoid Dragonstone at all costs, and if they meet any enemy on the water, they either engage the ship if it's just one ship, and if it's more, then Marcella's boat, the Sea Swift again, will run and be escorted by the quote, by the bold wind another ship, while the other ships do battle against the other ships. Kind of jumble it all up your head. It's all over excited. It all works out in your head. If Lord Stannis knew of the sailing, he could not have chosen a better time to send his fleet against us. Tyrion glanced back to where the rush emptied out into Blackwater Bay and was relieved to see no signs of sails on the wide green horizon. At last report, the Baratheon fleet lay, still lay off Storm's End, where Sir Courtney Penrose continued to defy the besiegers in dead Renly's name. Meanwhile, Tyrion's winch tower stood three quarters complete. Even now, men were hoisting heavy blocks of stone into place, no doubt cursing him for making them work through the festivities. Let them curse. 
Another fortnight, Stannis. That's all I require. Another fortnight and it will be done. Marcella kneels in front of the High Septon, who Tyrion describes as fat as a house, to receive the blessings from the faith. The old man drones on and on to Tyrion's irritation. But when he's finally done, Tyrion promises a reward of knighthood once Marcella is safely delivered to Bravos. He promises this, of course, to the sea captains and the sailors who are aboard her ship. As he made his way down the steep plank to the quay, Tyrion could feel unkind eyes upon him. The galley rocked gently and the movement underfoot made his waddle worse than ever. I'll wager they loved to snigger. No one dared, not openly, though we heard mutterings mingled with the creak of wood and rope and the rush of the river around the pilings. They do not love me, he thought. Well, small wonder. I am well fed and ugly, and they are starving. Yeah, <laughs> you're not wrong about that, Tyrion. Bronn is alongside Tyrion. Cersei's there too, ignoring Tyrion and making adoring smiles on Lancel. Cersei... Uh, okay, maybe don't do that given the sort of true rumors that are flying around with about loving your family and shit like that. But speaking of Cersei, she'd been conspiring of late. Oh yeah, big fucking plans, guys. She'd pr just pretend to go out to Baylor Sept to chat with the High Septon, but really she was going to hang out with Sir Osmond Kettleblack and his brother Osfried and Osni. And what conspiracy did Cersei plan with these rogues? Ah, to purchase her own sellswords. Oh no, this conspiracy is going to have major plot implications, right? <laughs> No, not really. Not until a piece of crows, anyways. Well, let her enjoy her plots, Tyrion thought. She was much sweeter when she thought she was outwitting him. The Kettleblacks would charm her, take her coin, and promise her anything she asked, and why not when Brahm was matching every copper penny, coin for coin? Amiable rogues, all three. The brothers were in truth much more skilled at deceit than they'd been at bloodletting. Cersei had managed to buy herself three hollow drums. They would make all the fierce booming sounds she'd required, but there was nothing inside. It amused Tyrion to no end. The ship shove off from King's Landing's docks, then accompanied by the sounds of horns. Tyrion sees Marcella waving from the deck of the sea swift with Sir Aries Okart standing behind her. Prince Simon cries, and Joffrey being Joffrey tells him to shut up, and that princes don't cry. Sansa, being a brave hero, corrects Joffrey by saying that Aemon the Dragon Knight cried when Princess Nerys married Aegon the Unworthy, and Sir Aric and Sir Eric died crying while striking mortal wounds on each other's personage. In response, Joffrey says, hey, really good point now that I think about it. No, actually, he tells Sansa that he'll have Marin, that he'll have Marin try and murder her if she doesn't Shut the fuck up. Classic Joffrey move. Tyrion wonders if Cersei is so blind to Joffrey's faults as the ships make their ways down the Blackwater Rush. Spoilers, yeah, she is. Speaking of those ships and their captains, Varys had told Tyrion that the captains weren't traitors, so they'd probably not turn Marcella over to Stannis. But then again, Varys wasn't the most wasn't the most trustworthy of folks about these parts. I rely on I rely too much on Varys, Tyrion reflected. I need my own informers. Not that I trust them either. Trust would get you killed. Speaking of untrustworthy folk, there had been no word from Littlefinger. Varys suggested that Littlefinger was dead, but fat chance. Most likely the Tyrells were busy rejecting the marriage alliance with, the, with Mace Tyrell not liking the possibility of Marjorie getting into bed with Joffrey. Literally. Anyways, Cersei indicates it's time to go, and Bronn gets all up into his saddle. Usually that was Podrick Payne's task, but the boy had, thankfully, thank God this happened, had been left behind in the Red Keep for today's festivities. As they trot back to the Red Keep, Tyrion notices gold cloaks holding the crowds back. He takes note of the party in relation to where he is. Jason Bywater is in front with armored lancers. Aaron Sentigar and Balan Swan were behind with the King's Banner. The Lannister line and the Crown Stag sigils, and Joffrey was following the Bannerman next to Sansa and between Sandra Clegane and Sir Mandon Moore. Behind them was a sniffling Tommen with Preston Greenfield riding shotgun for Tommen. Behind them, Cersei, Lancel, and the moron knights known as Marin Trent and Boris Blunt were there. Tyrion decides to ride along with Big Sis Cersei. Behind all of them was a whole crowd of retainers, the High Sept in his litter, Horace Redwine, Lady Tanda, 
Jalabarzo, Lord Giles, Rosby coughing his way through the ride back with the others and war guardsmen behind them. The unshaven and the unwashed stare at the riders with dull resentment from behind the line of spears. I like this not one speck, Tyrion thought. Bronn had a score of sellswords scattered through the crowds with orders to stop any trouble before it started. Perhaps Cersei had similarly disposed her kettleblacks. Somehow, Tyrion did not think it would help much. If the fire was too hot, you could hardly keep the pudding from scorching by tossing a handful of raisins in the pot. The party moves through the fishing square and moves through the muddy way before starting their ascent up Aegon's high hill. A few people hailed Joffrey, but hundreds more stayed silent and watched. Lannister Lannister Crimson rises through an ocean of hungry men, women, and children. Cersei laughs, and Tyrion is wondering if Cersei's spidey sense is going off just like his. Probably thinks. Probably not, I think. Halfway along the route, a wailing woman forced her way between two watchmen and ran out into the street in front of the king and his companions, holding the, holding the corpse of her dead baby above her head. It was blue and swollen, grotesque, but the real horror was the mother's eyes. Joffrey looked for a moment as if he meant to ride her down, but Sansa Stark leaned over and said something to him. The king fumbled in his purse and flung the woman a silver stag. The coin, the coin bounced off the child and rolled away under the legs of the gold cloaks and into the crowd, where a dozen men began to fight for it. The mother never once blinked. Her skinny arms were trembling from the dead weight from her son. Yeah, so that wretchedness of a chapter uh, gets me really fucking angry against Joffrey. Just the callousness, it really... Uh, yeah, makes me angry. Burns me up inside. Cersei tells Joffrey to leave the woman as she's unable to be helped, and the woman snaps out of her stupor and starts screaming that Cersei is a whore and a brother fucker over and over and over again. And then someone throws shit at Joffrey. Sansa gasps, and the quote-unquote king curses and demands to know who threw shit at him. He offers a hundred golden dragons for someone to rat out the small folk guy who did it. Someone says that it came from above. People start shouting and cursing and pointing. Sansa begs Joffrey to let them go, but Joffrey won't. He orders Sander Clegane to head into the crowd to bring the criminal to justice. Sander gets off his horse and tries to make his way into the crowd, but a wall of people hold the hound back. Everyone starts pushing and shouting and trying to get away from Sander Clegane. Tyrion smelled disaster. Clegane, leave off. The man has long fled. I want him, Joffrey pointed at the roof. He was up there. Dog, cut through them and bring. A tumult of sound drowned his last words, a rolling thunder of rage and fear and hatred that engulfed them from all sides. Bastard, someone shouted at Joffrey. Bastard, monster. Other, jo- other voices flung calls of horror and brotherfucker at the queen while Tyrion was pelted with shouts of freak and half-man. Mixed in with the abuse, he heard a few cries of justice and Rob, King Wolf, King Rob, the young wolf of Stannis and even Renly from, I don't know why, from both sides of the streets. The crowd surged against the spear shafts while the gold cloak struggled to hold the line. Stones and dung and fouler things whistled overhead. Feed us, a woman shrieked. Bread, boomed a man from behind her. We want bread, bastard. And a heartbeat, a thousand voices took up the chant. King Joffrey and King Rob and King Stannis were forgotten, and King Bread ruled alone. Bread, they clamored. Bread, bread. Tyrion brings his horse quick up next to Cersei and orders them to get the fuck back to the Red Keep pronto. Cersei nods. Jocelyn Bywater commands the lancers to make ready. They lower their lancers. Joffrey is spinning around his palfrey while people grab for his legs. One hand grasps the king's leg and Manamore slashes with his sword, cutting the arm off. Tyrion orders everyone to ride forward and slaps Joffrey's horse to move, make it move, push forward. The masses scatter in front of the oncoming riders and Tyrion and Bronn ride through them. A rock flies past Tyrion's head. A cabbage hits Manon's shield. Gold cloaks get trampled by the mob. Sander Clegane vanishes. Aaron Santigar gets pulled from his horse. Balon Swan drops the king's standard and draws his sword, slashing left and right. A peasant stumbles in front of Joffrey and he rides her down. And suddenly, 
that madness was behind them, and they were clattering across the cobbled square that fronted on the castle barbican. A land of spearmen held the gates. Sir Jason was wheeling his lancers around for another charge. The spears parted to let the king's party pass under the portcullis. Pale red walls loomed up about them, reassuringly high, and a swarm with crossbowmen. And that is part one of A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 9. Boy, um, this chapter, right? It's definitely my favorite half of a Tyrion chapter in A Clash of Kings. And I believe this is my, definitely my, def, this is definitely my favorite Tyrion chapter in full in all of A Clash of Kings. What did you think of this chapter, Emin? Oh, yeah, this is definitely my favorite Tyrion chapter in Clash and maybe my favorite Tyrion chapter full stop. And you did a great job with it. As you, you. say, it's, it's got everything. The full range of George's talents brought to bear, from the big picture of the bread riots to the more intimate character moments that will determine how Tyrion interacts with that bigger picture. The thread that connects it all is catharsis, the arousal of pity and terror, a purgification both emotional and, in this case, literal. It is a confrontation in the public square with everything that has been denied, in multiple senses of that word. We've been building up to this chapter for quite a while with Riot Watch in the foreshadowing sections, a powder keg getting ready to burst. And now it has, all over the city and all over A Clash of Kings. Hmm. The Riot is the equivalent in Clash to Ned's downfall in A Game of Thrones in the throne room, or the Red Wedding in the Storm of Swords. This isn't the climax of the book, that's still a ways off with the Battle of Blackwater, but this really kicks the book into roller coaster mode. I think you're right about this not being the climax, but it's a moment of intense narrative payoff that's impossible for me to, to forget. I mean, Martin planted the seeds for the riot throughout the narrative that the city's hungry, the city's angry, the city doesn't like Lannisters. And I bullet point all the hashtag riot watch foreshadowing from earlier in the Clash Kings just for purposes of posterity for this episode. So Tyrion 1, City on the Brink of Starvation. Sansa 2, mentions of unrest and starvation in the city. It's Tyrion 3, the gold cloaks are foraging for food outside of King's Landing. Tyrion 4, food is not coming into the city. Sansa 3, Tyrion 5, Joffrey is crossbowing starving peasants. Tyrion 7, the small folk are down to eating cats. Tyrion 8, Littlefinger mentions how little food is available in the markets. And then a riot in this chapter. Set up and payoff. It's writing 101, folks. And I think what makes this especially good setup and payoff is how it fits organically into the framework of a story which has the high lords playing their Game of Thrones, preventing the small folk from attaining their rain, healthy children, and summer, as Jorah Mormont talked about. The small folk are striking back in, against their oppressors, and the loudest voices don't advocate Rob, Stannis, or even Renly, although their, voices are, although their names are shouted. They don't even cry out against the Lannister regime so much. They scream for the most powerful king in the realm, King bread mm, beautifully said sir it's, and it's easy to reduce Tyrion nine in memory to that great you know moment when the small folk speak as one you know to the riot itself before we get to the fireworks factory george focuses our attention on marcella's departure on the surface this is little more than a red herring for the chapter's purpose to catch us off guard with the riot and, and so enhance the tension and excitement but on reread, I began noticing all the ways this scene feeds in to what's about to happen and the larger themes and images that dominate Tyrion 9. On a literal level, there is no connection. It's not like the people are rioting because Marcella is leaving or because they disapprove of the Dornish as during the, the Blackfire Rebellion days. If you think about it, however, this was guaranteed to happen whenever the royal family and all their hangers-on were coaxed out beyond the Red Keep at this point. After all, that's why Tyrion has sellswords scattered throughout the crowd. He was anticipating such a possibility, just not the size and scope of it. The reader is not alone in our awareness that you laid out so well that King's Landing is a powder keg on the verge of catharsis. Our POV character is very much aware of it because it's been going on in his chapters. Yet, they have to be here to see Marcella off, to maintain their shadow on the wall, 
They have to pretend like nothing's wrong, otherwise there definitely will be. You have to act like the royal family in order to be the royal family. And yet, Tyrion 9, perhaps more than anything, is about what happens when the shadow fades, when the image falls apart, when political legitimacy dies. All the pretenses don't help. They don't change the raw material facts that outlive the shadows. You are starving, they are not, and they are all at last conveniently here where you can get at them. The Lannisters have pushed the narrative that they are in charge as far as they possibly can. And the catharsis of A Clash of Kings Tyrion 9 is that narrative busting apart. George builds this organizing principle, the face of power on the verge of breaking, into this chapter from the very beginning, from the opening words, The girl never wept. Young as she was, Marcella Baratheon was a princess born. As you say, it's the one happy moment and it all comes apart from there. <laughs> right, yeah. Marcella is keeping it all together, in multiple senses. Like Rob at the beginning of Catelyn's POV in this book, she is hyper-aware that all the world is a stage and she has the spotlight. She mm. is the center of this perfect projected political tableau. Rob couldn't help but mess with his crown, nervous before the camera's gaze. Marcella is pure poise, knowing all her lines and moves, a princess born. And yet, Tyrion can't help but think to himself that she's not a Baratheon, in truth. She is all Lannister. And there is so much pride and pain mixed into that sentiment. On the one hand, Tyrion clearly loves and is proud of Marcella. Bronn will wish T Tommen was the king later on in this chapter. Tyrion will toy with the idea of Marcella as queen early on in A Dance with Dragons. When Tyrion thinks of Marcella as being Jaime's blood, the secret daughter of the one relative he loves, for now, he is affirming their bond, and it's very sweet. But it is precisely that hidden parentage, that hidden connection, that is putting them all in danger from Stannis. It is that danger that haunts Tyrion's thoughts, preventing him from focusing purely on his pride and love for his niece. He's worried about what happens if Stannis should get his, get his hands on the girl he called an abomination. She's a princess in actions, in the moment, in her bearing, in temperament, but not in terms of her bloodline, in terms of the law. That which makes her precious to Tyrion is precisely what puts her in danger, and that is the truth behind that smiling mask. Right. But it's also just one aspect of the law is Dormartel is going to attempt to, not Dormartel, Arany Martell is attempted going to True. do the Dornish version of, of that, that the those that well, the one who was born before Tommen is actually the one who's actually the heir. And as also Dorn and Ariane point out repeatedly, Marcella is very intelligent, seemingly very charming. And they like her, even though they're obviously conspiring to use her for their own political schemes. There is a genuine, I think, sense of that these two characters are think 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 the world of her and i'm kind of reminded of how george like uses like the goldilocks formula to evaluate political leadership of westeros have you ever noticed there's like a lot of like three children just always three children right stannis renly robert you know uh joffrey marcella tommen jamie cersei Tyrion. you know all that sort of stuff i mean i i think it's also like things we can go all the way back in history with rainies and visenya and aegon and rainies being kind of overframing the fun times and loving her her jests and her her poetry and music and Visenya was too warlike and focused on the harder things in life. And Aegon sort of struck the balance between these these three uh, siblings. And then we get to the next generation in history. Aenys was too soft, Maegor too cruel, and Jahara is just right. Although Fire and Blood casts a lot of doubt on that, as uh, we covered in our Fire and Blood episodes on Patreon. Renly was also obs too obsessed with image politics, Stannis too obsessed with the substance, and Robert had the balance of substance and style, at least initially during Robert's Rebellion. Pretty much fell apart after that. 
So too, now we focus on the last two kids. Joffrey is too cruel. Tommen too tractable, as everyone says. He just likes to stamp shit. And Rosella is just right. She just strikes that balance of strength and love, standing up to Joffrey during the name day tourney in Sansa's first chapter. One of my favorite moments in A Clash of Kings, as I read back to that a few days ago. And she's the one who is giving comfort to Tommen here. It's really a really touching moment that this girl who is... Obviously not a Baratheon, very much a daughter of Cersei and Jaime, somehow turned out right and somehow turned out to be much better than all of her peers and all of her adults really in her, in her life. It's touching, sweet, and of course it makes it all the more tragic that she's doomed. I think you're right. It's it's touching because it seems almost accidental. It seems to have just happened on its own, and but it's also just so fragile, and we know that even now. The one sign you get of that early on is that Marcella's smile is, quote, a shade tremulous, a lovely term. It's the first crack in the glass, the flaw in the perfect portrait, the hint that it's all going to go wrong. Marcella doesn't know it, but her parentage is the tremulous shade in the house of cards that is Lannister power. She embodies their strength and their weakness at the same time. George then checks in with the strategic side of Tyrion's mind, which is increasingly obsessed with Stannis since the news of Renly's death. Everything Tyrion sees makes him think of the true Baratheon heir, coming to claim his throne and city from Cersei's children with fire and blood. Tyrion has taken sensible precautions. He has sent several strong ships. He has dispatched Eris Okart, one of the more trustworthy Kingsguard knights, to protect Marcella. <laughs> and he has engaged the services of Bravos to get her to Dorne, and that is a very cunning move. This is one example of how the pretense of power is still helping the Lannisters even as they slide to what seems like certain defeat. They are the ones with the ability to make public alliances with Bravos. Stannis has more military power now, and he has you know, quite the reputation to deal with, for, for both better and worse, but he lacks the signifiers of power, the city, the treasury, the throne. Bravos does not respect his authority, not yet anyway. So Tyrion gets to use Bravosi power as a shield in order to get, to Mer- in order to get Marcella to Dorne, acquiring more power there in turn. I think of the things that you're mentioning, I think it's the control of the royal treasury, which is the chief shadow on the wall that the Bravosi are are looking up to and saying, we want to support these guys. Because their power, that is the Lancer's power of the purse, means that the Sea Lord Bravos and the Iron Bank will negotiate with them and lend them money. And this shared economic purpose between the Sea Lord and the Iron Bank, which was isn't made explicit in any of the texts, but is strongly hinted at, drives this bargain with the Lancers as much as the vestments of power, the other ones that you were mentioning, do. The implication here is that the Lancers are continuing to pay interest against the loans that Robert took out from the Iron Bank. And Robert, when I mean Robert, I say, of course, Littlefinger is what it actually means. But as John notes in Dance of Dragons, once you prove financially untrustworthy to the Iron Bank, bad shit goes down. The Iron Bank of Bravos had a fearsome reputation when collecting debts. Each of the nine free cities had its bank, and some had more than one, fighting over every coin like dogs over a bone. But the Iron Bank was richer and more powerful than all the rest combined. When princes defaulted on their debts to lesser banks, ruined bankers sold their wives and children to slavery and opened their own veins. When princes failed to obey the Iron Bank, new princes sprang up from nowhere and took the thrones. All that's to say is that in Bravos, the legitimizing political currency is, wait for it, Currency. And when you aren't earning, it's Stannis time, baby. Exactly. And that, that feeds so well into what Tyrion is dealing with here. He is positively humming with anxiety about elements beyond his control if the Lannisters should lose their legitimacy. About Stannis turning up at any moment, Tyrion is unable to feel secure in, in this power. Stannis has become a fearsome figure of dread and death in Tyrion's mind, just as he has in Catelyn's mind. 
his shadow casting long and dark over Westeros at war. And I get why, of course, Stannis poses a significant threat. But Tyrion isn't paying enough attention to the threat of the starving, riled-up small folk. He is so fixated on the horizon that he doesn't feel the ground falling away underneath mm-hmm. him. And that sums up the overall mindset of people in power right now, with the occasional exception like Edmure. They're so intent on getting at each other that they're barely paying any attention to everyone they're grinding under the wheels. When Tyrion does take note of the peasants, the laborers, everyone who constitutes the actual majority population of Westeros, it's only to dismiss them. He thinks that he doesn't care if the people building his winch towers are cursing his name just as long as we get the job done, as long as we get the greater good, that's what I'm focused on. But then he's taken aback when Jocelyn Bywater says they hate him later in the chapter. (laughs) And this is filtered, of course, as always through his stature and how the world has treated him because of it. As part of this ceremony, this public performance of power, Tyrion must walk in public, or as he thinks of it, waddle. It's humiliating for him. No one laughs, although Tyrion thinks he knows they must want to. He feels them laughing on the inside anyway. And doesn't that so perfectly capture the futility of using power to fix the wounds we've taken? Tyrion now has the authority to make everyone shut up when he's around, But he can't silence the voice inside that tells him about their voices inside. In that projected space of learned abjection, Tyrion's power, his armor, does not help him. Yeah, and I think that armor concept is so important to Tyrion. It's the advice it gives to Jon early on. And it's starting to kind of shift a little bit in Tyrion's mind. Because part of Tyrion's arc in A Song of Ice and Fire is how he's gradually becoming more like Tywin Lannister as the story progresses. He's now fearful of laughter and being laughed at. Considering how Tyrion laughs uproariously when Jon tells him that Ghost maybe thought he was a grumpkin back in the Game of Thrones, that's, it's sad. I mean, it struck me as a little bit sad here. Now he's using laughter and mockery to win short-term advantage in his discussion with Alistair Thorne in Tyrion's sixth chapter. He's now using laughter as a weapon against other people. But if he's the one not dishing out the burns or being at, or at the brunt of the laughter, he mistrusts it and sees it as a weapon to be used against him. There's no, quote, wear it like armor, John, at work with how Tyrion views his disability now. He's instead acting in a kind of early Jon Snow way and lashing out, even internally, at his own bullies. And when he has the opportunity, he compensates for his disadvantage, enjoying how high it looks when sitting the Iron Throne in Tyrion 6, and then eventually when he's atop his horse here in this chapter. As we talked about it, though, at length, Tyrion has refused to use his disability and his, also his underdog status to his advantage, and he'll continue to not use this to his advantage until his, literally, his final moments of power at the Battle of the Blackwater, when people are shouting for half-man there at the battle. And not using their status as underdogs is a defining feature of all of Tywin's kids. Yeah, that's a really good point. It affects them all in different ways, given their different relationships to power. Cersei goes through a similar process where even as she takes charge in her own right in A Feast for Crows, she is limited not only by what the world thinks of her as a woman, but also by what she thinks of herself as a woman, her internalized misogyny. We also see how Tyrion's power intersects with his disability when he considers why the small folk might be pissed off at him. Again, this is a concept he reacts to with shock and anger later on in the chapter because it's hatred relative to Joffrey, like even worse than they hate Joffrey, but he is calmer and aware of it now in his mind. They hate him because they are starving, he thinks to himself, whereas he is, quote, well-fed and ugly. The slippage there, wherein the small folk have one trait, starving, and he has two, well-fed and ugly, again perfectly summarizes Tyrion's worldview with just a few words. You could have easily said, they hate me because I am well-fed and they are starving, one-to-one. That's a simple enough concept to articulate, but Tyrion's thoughts intervene with, and ugly. 
he has so thoroughly internalized their hatred, his internal monologue just supplies what their words cannot, and he can't help but filter their suffering through that. They hate me in part because of the power structure I sit atop, that of wealth, that of the political hierarchy of Westeros, but also in part because of the power structure where I sit at the bottom, a convenient target, that of stature, that of the image of masculinity in this particular world. Both are true. Both power dynamics exist in this world, and that's what makes the politics of this moment so difficult to untangle. Tyrion is using political power to insulate him from the, quote, big people who have mocked him, and in turn, their bigotry is an excuse to ignore their starvation. From their perspective, they mock him because it's their only tool against him, because they're so powerless to affect change in any other area of their life. This combination produces alienation and resentment that makes a better world impossible. It's why we have to investigate multiple kinds of power and injustice. Tyrion has contextualized the rage of the small folk in a way that allows him to dismiss their importance, and his mind's eye goes right back to the labyrinthine power place among the nobility, specifically regarding Cersei and the Kettleblack brothers. <laughs> Cersei can perform power so easily in this scene, all smiles and flirtation, because behind the scenes she has got herself a conspiracy cooking. I love the detail that Cersei meets with the Kettleblacks while pretending to visit the Sept of Baelor <laughs> to pray for victory against Stannis and his new Red God. That sums up how the people in power are maintaining a mask of piety and humility and service, while in truth they are consumed with paranoia about one another, and only think of other people as pawns to be used in a game that benefits very few. And it's all for nothing. Cersei thinks she's found a reliable source of power in the Kettleblacks, but they're taking Tyrion's money too. Tyrion thinks this puts him in charge, but he never stops to wonder if the Kettleblacks are conning him as well. <laughs> they're making fierce but hollow booming sounds for Cersei, as he thinks. Well, what if that's all they're doing for him? What if they've told Cersei everything and have reassured her they're only feigning loyalty to Tyrion? Even as Tyrion proves more insightful than other members of his family and class about various subjects, he still has huge blind spots about his own use of power. The Kettleblacks end up choosing Cersei over Tyrion in this book, but we learn in A Storm of Swords that Littlefinger has been pulling their strings all along. Or so he thinks. <laughs> the Kettleblacks will probably prove just as useless, at best, to Littlefinger as they were for the Lannisters. There is no substance, no true steel beneath their shell games. Like the stone cows of Karth, they are hollow drums all the way down. Isn't that that Littlefinger makes that note in Feast of Crows in one of Sansa's chapters that the Kettleblacks are not really like cooperating with him anymore, even though it was like their father who helped to to get them out of King's Landing, get get Sansa out of there, and because we had just did a whole four part series on on Davos' second chapter, in which three quarters of the chapter is Stannis castigating the Stormlords who are now a part of him, it did kind of strike me that the Kettleblacks kind of work as like kind of Lannister Stormlords or even like the Karstarks in a Dance with Dragons attempting to play Stannis and the Boltons off against each other. And really just kind of half-assing it. Oh, the Kettleblacks seem a little bit smarter in that they are so far alive at the moment. Although, of course, there is that moment. Was it, is it Osfri is the one who goes to the High Septon and confesses to murdering the one, the High Sparrow and confesses to murdering the High Septon previous to him? All this, uh, Yeah, so all the same, like, these guys are playing, like, kind of a cunning, a low-cunning game at the moment. But when they actually start to advance in this world and they think they're actually going to make out with Cersei on top, sometimes literally, that means that whoops there. Uh, that means that uh, that they they're playing outside of their their game. And you know the Kettleblacks, for all of their 
bluster are interesting characters and they are a faction that George has mentioned several times as being important to the Winds of Winners. So I'm eager to see what's actually going to happen with them come Winds, given that George has mentioned them several times and given that a lot of their fate is left open to what's going to happen with them in the wake of Cersei's trial by battle and Marjorie's trial by the faith. I think that rise and fall dynamic is, is precisely the point. There, there is a perverse strength to this constant slipperiness and betrayal. In a Westeros at war, the shifting tides of power can make loyalty a fool's bet. It's the same reason Lord Swan sent his sons off to different sides of the war. Every side needs disavowable assets like the Kettleblacks, and so the Kettleblacks can draw paychecks from every side at once. But as with the Bloody Mummers, the war does eventually catch up with them when it comes to the Sparrow Movement, and the Kettleblacks find out their sleazy liminal status offers them no long-term protection. Their name, of course, refers to the saying about the pot calling the kettle black. By working for everyone, they expose hypocrisy and corruption wherever they go. Tyrion and Cersei are dragging each other down into the shit, like Stannis and Renly did. The triple-cross game with the kettle blacks just highlights that. We see this blind spot at work when Tyrion is all agog at Joffrey's cruelty towards Sansa. He wonders how blind Cersei can be, whilst he himself is blind about the kettle blacks. We all see what we choose to see, fooling ourselves into thinking that we're being the objective ones, and all of these powerful folks are about to get a brutal lesson in that. Yeah, and it, it, we go back to this kind of train of thought we've been talking about throughout Clash, about in a perfect world, the Lancers and the Baratheons would work together as kind of like the perfect like superhero team. You got Cersei's the beautiful queen in front of the house, Tyrion is back of the house, power behind the scenes, Jaime is optics of chivalry, he can do whatever. Joffrey is somehow not around in this imaginary scenario. Instead, all of the Lancers scheme against each other, putting the Kettleblacks, playing the Kettleblacks off each other, against each other, and stab each other in the back. And I'm going to blame someone who deserves blame. It's all Tywin fucking Lannister's fault. His inability to be emotionally present in his children's lives, using his children in his political schemes, actively hating one of his one of his kids, maybe even all of them, but specifically Tyrion. All of that toxic parenting has led to toxic relationships between the children. Whether they're fucking each other, wanting to fuck each other, scheming to murder each other, the imagined scenarios where they work together can't work because of the sins of the former generation of their parents. And wouldn't you know it, but the sins of the parents extends to yet another generation, right? It just seems to happen so often with these Lannisters. Sadly, as those puppet strings go back and back and they extend forward, they extend to the kids. It's so revealing that Joffrey thinks princes aren't supposed to cry when he will conduct himself so poorly in public as a king as this chapter goes on. The masses don't really care about Tommen crying. They care about being starved and shot upon and killed by the king's pet thugs. That's what brings down Joffrey's legitimacy. Sansa Stark, blessed, pure little nerd that she is, <laughs> pipes up with her receipts from the stories and songs. There were, in fact, princes who cried. Specifically, they cry when their families fall apart, when Neris wed Aegon IV, when twins turned on one another. And you can see the resonances with what's happening now. Jamie wept when Cersei wed Robert, and now Stannis and Renly, who are not twins, but are brothers, and they have turned on one another. The image of the perfect, glittering, manly king gives way to the soft interior of us all, broken things that we are. The princes are crying on the inside. But the small folk are done crying on the inside where no one can see. This is a chapter about catharsis, and everything is about to come out into the open. The royal procession sets out for the Red Keep, protected by a line of gold cloaks on either side, and George takes his time describing each rider in turn. This is not only to establish who is present and where they are, so as to preserve spatial coherence for the upcoming action scene. George is emphasizing the richness of the banners, the jewels Sansa is wearing, the overall beauty and refinement on display, as a contrast to the people of King's Landing, for whom all of that is kept at a distance. Not only that, 
but their taxes are paying for all that glittering refinery. Our few are moved by the sight and call out for Joffrey, but most do not. They have seen through the con. They realize the corrupted nature of beauty I talked about in Danny 3. And ultimately, as Minnesota Governor Tom Walz said during the recent unrest in American cities, the authorities must reckon with how thoroughly they are outnumbered by the people they seek to control. Tyrion knows that the undercover cops he's planted among the potential rioters won't be enough to stop what's coming. Cersei has to know it too, but she pretends otherwise, playing the role of the happy beautiful queen in order to be, the shadow on the wall, it's about to fall apart. It falls apart not with a direct physical blow, but with a final attempt to force the Lannisters to reckon with what they have done to the people over whom they rule. A woman forces her way out into the street, holding her dead baby above her head. As abject and heartbreaking a sight of a starved infant is, George tells us that the real horror is the woman's eyes, and he really doesn't have to say anything more. The dead are at least at peace. As with Catelyn bearing witness to Ned's bones, the real horror is living on with the knowledge of what has been taken from you. This woman has to wake up every day and remember that her child starved to death because these rich assholes wouldn't share the scraps off their plates. Michael Brown and Ferguson was beyond pain when his body was left out in the sun for hours by the police who were protecting the killer, one of their own. But the people observing his body were not beyond pain. The pain was in their eyes, not his. The pain of living with the knowledge of your own exploitation. It is the hideously painful revelation that your life does not matter to the people who have the power to grant you mercy or punishment on a whim. The starvation of an infant is about as wretched a commentary on the failure of a society I can imagine. One that calls to mind Les Mis, that calls to mind Dostoevsky, and even some of the staging of the scene calls to mind something like Do the Right Thing, a serious hmm. reckoning of public anger, of public fire in the square. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely correct. And unfortunately, I have to ask the uncomfortable question about whether this is an organic expression of sorrow by the small folk or potential mummery. And I, I know, I know you're already shouting at me and I, I appreciate your shouts. There is, as you're saying, real horror in what's occurring, no doubt. And I have zero doubt as well that children are among those who have died when the High Lords play the Game of Thrones and are literally, and not figuratively, starving the city. It's... It's just the ti- the timing of it all, the placement of the one with the dead child, the tossing of the shit. And yeah, so I guess here we go. Let me explain. So starting with the build up to the actual eruption. So here's the line. They crossed Fishmonger Square and rode along Buddy Way before turning onto the narrow curving hook to begin their climb up Aegon's High Hill. So here we have the King's Party moving uphill through a narrow curving street. Additionally, the windy aspect of the street ensures that visual contact cannot be maintained throughout the route. What this means is that once the front element crosses the bend in the road, they can't see what's happening towards the rear, and the rear can't see what's happening towards the front. So the party has to stretch out in order to keep moving or bunch up, and both options are bad. Stretching out negates the tactical advantage of massing together with gold cloaks, knights, and kingsguard able to protect all members of the party, and bunching up also funnels the Lancer host, forcing most of the party to stop movement altogether and be caught with a hostile crowd all around them. So the party stretches out, and I think that's probably the option that makes the most sense. They really have to keep moving as Tyrion is aware that the mood of the crowd is growing ugly and suspects Cersei's aware too, but putting on a brave face. And now we come to the event of the woman approaching the king. Let's find out where this occurs. Halfway along the route, a wailing woman forced her way between two watchmen and ran out onto the street in front of the king and his companions. Now, recalling the placement of the party or the order of march, so to speak, Joffrey's in the middle of the column moving forward and now everyone gets stopped. 
To me, this kind of reads like a textbook ambush scenario. And the way I was taught in how to conduct ambushes was to wait for the enemy to be in the center, to strike, cutting off the front and rear of the column, and then defeating the enemy in detail. Now, I don't imagine that George R. Martin opened up a copy of FM 3-21.8 or FM 7-8, which was the actual manual that was in, in, in publication that time in the, in the 90s. I don't know, I'm a nerd about this shit. And studied how ambushes are conducted. But it doesn't take a soldier to understand the site selection for stopping the column right where it does stop to spring a trap. So I will pause there because I know that's probably a little, just a, just slightly controversial, right? No, I think you laid that all laid that all out really well. And the question of whether or not this was deliberately staged for ambush purposes is one we will return to next week when we talk about Varus and Tyrek and get into the possible motivations for such a setup. I think, I mean, this not in in contrast to that really, but just kind of in addition to it, just from a slightly different angle. I think at some level, it doesn't really matter whether this particular woman is a paid agitator or not, or whether this was a setup in an ambush or not, because she does stand in, as you say, for the real suffering experienced by thousands. And oftentimes, you know, the, the presentation of such event as staged is used as a fig leaf to deny that suffering. And we see that over and over again in current unrest in American cities and in countries like Israel, that you, you if you point to bad actors or if you point to even signs of organization at all, it gets, you know, presented as astroturf. And that, that's allowed to, you know, paper over the horrors potentially being done to these people. Oftentimes, police and intelligence agencies pay agitators in order to dismiss the concerns of genuine activists and paint them all with a negative brush. And I think we do... We have this persistent idea of the platonic good suffering person in our head. And anyone who doesn't fit that image, their concerns become easier to dismiss. As if a starving, disenfranchised person is ever going to be an angel. You know, these are the conditions that produce revolutionaries, benign and otherwise. And that platonic ideal just doesn't really exist. It's such a myth that we have to invent one and we have to break real living people down into them. So often Martin Luther King's anti-war and anti-capitalist ideals, along with his belief that white moderates who prefer order to justice are the real obstacle to civil rights, are often left out of his image in favor of just the angle presented by the I Have a Dream speech shorn of context. Or look at Rosa Parks. How often is she described as just an ordinary woman who got fed up one day instead of an activist taking part in a deliberate long-term strategy? It's this flip side of the coin, I think, when when the rebels are seen by the powerful and by the media as bad, then they are paid agitators. And when the, when they become seen as good later on, well, then they were just ordinary folks all along, like you and me. And there, so there really, there really is no model of upsetting the status quo that will be seen as legitimate by those benefiting from the status quo. And, of course, I think, you know, again, regardless of the particular status of this staging and of this woman – Nothing forces Joffrey to respond like he does. He, it, it, he proves his own unworthiness as a leader. He demonstrates that the people are right to rise up against him in any form. First, he prepares to outright ride the woman down. Only Sansa Stark, again, bless her, intervenes to save the woman's life. And so Joffrey then tosses coins down, and they scatter and roll, and everyone just fights over them. We saw the same thing at the hand's tourney with Renly. Careless charity like this is just not enough to solve what's ailing King's Landing. And then Cersei steps in to try and paper this over one last time, putting on a show, as Tyrion says. Leave the poor thing alone. She is beyond our help. And yeah, so she is. But that's only because of the Lannisters' neglectful leadership. And now that bill has come due, it's time to pay the piper. That woman howls insults at Cersei, framing the twincest as the original sin that has infected everything, rendering King's Landing an unlivable hellscape. And then someone throws shit at Joffrey. Tyrion can't see who. In retrospect, I can't help but think of the man who threw a shoe at George W. Bush. And again, at at some level, 
it is it is interesting to consider how much of this is being staged and arranged and how perfect it is and how calculated it is and that's definitely an aspect of it but at another level, if it feels academic to me, whether it's a starving resident of Fleabottom being paid by Varus or it's a starving resident of Fleabottom who isn't being paid by Varus, the point is that they're starving and the people in power are happy to manipulate them against each other as they continue to starve. And the point ultimately is how Joffrey reacts to it. Joffrey once more just casually tosses money around, a hundred golden dragons to the man who gives up the shit flinger. I will never lift a finger to help you, but oh, I will empty my treasury to punish you. Those are my priorities as your king, and it's a dynamic we are very familiar with in, in, in our modern United States. The, the cries to defund the police are in large part about a recognition that the seeming invulnerability of the police in, in legal justice terms has to do with the, the invulnerability of their money. And that's what's going on with the Lannisters here, that they're starving people. But when it comes to, you know, randomly dealing with people who dare rebel against them, then suddenly money is no object for them. And Tyrion smells disaster in this moment, not because of the mob on its own, but because of how Joffrey is inciting the mob, proving the point. As always, Joffrey himself is the sticking point, preventing Tyrion from ever doing justice as he pledged. Joffrey orders Sandor to cut through the people on the streets in order to bring him the head of the man who threw the shit. Cut through dozens of people like their wood. It's difficult to imagine a more comprehensive abandonment of governance. These are the possibilities of irresponsible power for Lord of the Flies. And again, even if this was a psyop by Varus to expose how unworthy a leader Joffrey is, it worked. <laughs> the resulting anger is the most genuine thing there is. And when I first read this passage, my mind went to the treatment of freedom riders and other civil rights protesters in the 1960s. And now my mind goes to how police have treated those protesting against their violence in the modern day. The brutal facts of occupation cannot be waved away by zeroing in on suspect individuals. Every single person in that crowd could be paid to be there, and it doesn't change the fact that Joffrey unleashed his cops to break their heads. They are meat as far as he's concerned, not people. And all at once, Joffrey loses the consent of the governed, and the people rise up against him. But again, I, I totally agree that you make a great point that this is not this. This is exactly the moment when you'd want yeah. to stop this this uh, this this procession. And there's there's a, I think there's I think there's a con combination of calculation and chance at work. And I think it's it's really good to tease those out. Well, you drive a really good point about how this. Even if this was the every single person was an agitator in this crowd, a paid agitator, a George Soros plant, that they all would have been right to rise up anyways, because Joffrey just proved himself completely unworthy of the leadership. And there's no argument that Joffrey is unfit to rule. And he demonstrates this with his three responses. One, wanting to ride the woman down in the first place. Two, cursing, offering money to the person who threw shit at him and then ordering Sander Clegane to cut through the crown and find the perpetrator of the shit strike. Now, I'm not arguing that the response to the small folk was inorganic or staged because I really don't get that sense from this chapter. There has been a massive buildup of injustices and targeted deprivations of the small folk perpetuated by the ruling classes of Westeros, classes, not just the Lannisters, that have led to the city erupting here. I think, I think what I'm rather arguing is that the spark to cause the uprising at this particular location in this particular tactically convenient spot is convenient for someone to want to do it here. Not that it's inorganic at all, because I think it absolutely is organic. Because Joffrey reacted in the same manner as he operates throughout the narrative. He executes traitors back in the Game of Thrones. He orders people to fight to the death, and he fires crossbow bolts at starving peasants who come to the gates clamoring for bread. 
As you were saying, we'll unpack more about Varys and Tyrek next time, but I'll just note here that before the riot starts, Tyrion thinks Varys himself was of doubtful loyalty. I, re I rely too much on Varys, he reflected. I need my own informers. And Varys is not present among the royal column, as Jamie notes in A Storm of Swords. It is not easily found later in this chapter when Tyrion sends Podrick after him. Again, all fodder for discussion for next week when we have the discussion about Tyrek and Varys and stuff like that. I just figured I would just put the argument forward that at least one aspect of it was potentially planned and staged, but not the whole of it at all. 99.8% of it was not inorganic at all. I think, yeah, I think that's the right balance to strike. It's like a, a twig to unleash a flood is like with Merry and Pippin and, and Fingorn Forest. And it, it just it, it, it needed any form to take. And I think that's what made it, you know, open to precise shaping by the more calculating elements of King's Landing because it was so obvious and because the powder keg was simmering. And so you get the bread riot of King's Landing. It takes the form of a rolling thunder, a storm of noise that engulfs the King's party. Rage and fear and hatred given pure form. Those emotions simmering under the surface have been brought forth. From suspense to catharsis, a purgification in the public square, the world as a stage. Everyone gets pelted with insults. Joffrey, Cersei, and Tyrion alike. As I said earlier, the people use Tyrion's stature against him because it's their only advantage over him, and he, in turn, uses that to dismiss their desperation as invalid. Mixed in with the abuse, as Tyrion puts it, are more affirmative cries for a change in leadership, but there is no unity as to who should replace Joffrey and dispense the justice they are crying for. Some folks call for Stannis, the only remaining adult claimant for the Iron Throne, but others call for Rob, despite the fact that he's not claiming the throne at all. <laughs> others even call for Renly, despite his death. This shows the difficulty of organizing public anger in a specific concrete direction. Once more, that the small folk are legitimate in their anger, that they are right about a change in leadership being desperately needed, does not automatically organize them on its own. Opening the floodgates is necessary, but not sufficient. George uses the pressure cooker of the riot to expose the thorny, knotted nature of political change. The status quo is clearly unacceptable and has been clarified in this moment, but what will replace it? The proletariat has the power to completely reshape the world, but the existing hierarchies of power and cultural thought resist change even when their corruption is nakedly exposed. Imagination and organization are required and need to be kept up. The one thing everyone in this mob has in common, the one organizing principle that brought them all here, is that they are starving. Nothing inspires a rebellion like empty stomachs, and so the one king they believe in is King Bread. This is George doing some material analysis here, demonstrating that all <laughs> the shadows on walls dominating a clash of kings fall apart in the ravenous face of hunger. Only now does the mob speak with one voice. We the people are dying, and we the people are not going to take it anymore. We want justice. We want bread. None of these kings matter to us, because as the Brotherhood argues, they are preying on us, depriving us of the sustenance we need to survive. They want to be left alone by the Game of Thrones, but the Game of Thrones defines the context in which they live, and right now it is not letting them live. They know it, and so they rise up, not against the Lannisters, but against starvation. They rise against exploitation. They rise for freedom from want, the idea that society is supposed to be better than this and can be. This terrifies Tyrion more than the contradictory cries for one alternate faction or another. King Bread is ultimately a more potent challenge than King Rob or King Stannis. 
A great point. And I think this rite also reframes the riddle that Varas posed to Tyrion back in his first clash chapter. In a room sit three great men, a king, a priest, and a rich man with his gold. Between them stands a sellsword, a little man of common birth and no great mind. Each of the great ones bids him slay the other two. Do it, says the king, for I am your lawful ruler. Do it, says the priest, for I command you in the names of the gods. Do it, says the rich man, and all this gold shall be yours. So tell me who lives and who dies. Here in this chapter, we have a king, a high septon, and plenty of rich assholes. And the little men, small folk, of common birth and no great mind have have decided that they can kill all of them. As you've been saying really, really well in this chapter analysis, their grievance, the grievances of the small folk and their turn to violence is somewhat justified as, nat- as at least a natural occurrence for what's been occurring to them throughout the narrative. It's not as though the Lannisters have been trying their best to feed the population have been the victim of circumstance and bad luck here. And George goes out of his way to describe all of the lavish food, the lavish food that Tyrion eats within the walls of the Red Keep. Another example of how food porn can be an effective way of communicating class distinction and how the wealth of the Lannisters immunizes them from the, depreda- from the deprivations of starvation that's affecting hundreds of thousands of King's Landers. But it's not just the royal family who's eating well. Think back to Tyrion's fourth chapter where Tyrion thinks that only a thin trickle of food was coming into King's Landing, most of it earmarked for castle and garrison. Prices had risen sickeningly high on the greens, roots, flower, and fruit, and Tyrion did not want to think about what sorts of flesh might be going into the kettles of the pot shops down in Fleet Bottom. These gold cloaks, red cloaks, knights, Kingsguard knights, lords, the ones who are holding the line for Joffrey are all fed at the expense of the population that starves around them. Now, in Tyrion's mind, his sole interest is in holding King's Landing against Stannis, so of course he has to prioritize those who would man the gates, walls, and ships that defend the capital. And we should never forget that the city is being starved in small part because the Riverlands are a battlefield and able to ship food to the city, and in a larger part because Renly and the Tyrell strategy is to block food shipments to the city as a deliberate strategy to weaken the Lannisters politically and militarily, using starvation as a weapon. But as we point out in our analyses of Tyrion's class chapters, Tyrion is propping up a lawless regime who continues to perpetuate their further lawlessness and atrocity on the small folk. So the small folk of King's Landing say, fuck this shit and fuck you for causing this shit. It's a completely natural and I would argue justified reaction by the small folk here. Agreed. And so seeing the mob united as one stomach speaking with that one voice telling him to fuck off, Tyrion decides it's time to cut and run. And at this point, the scene explodes into chaos. Fragments of images fly by as though being captured in the shaky cam of a documentarian on the scene, and we are very familiar with such images these days. Rocks and vegetables are flying at the king's party. Hands flash out from the crowd only to explode into blood and screams as the swords flash down. Gold cloaks go down under the sheer weight of humanity. Sandor is just suddenly gone, his horse running riderless. Aaron Santagar is seen being pulled from his horse. Amidst the cacophony, one image stands out as representative of the whole. Balin Swan drops the Lannister banner in order to defend himself, and the banner is promptly ripped to shreds. Ragged crimson leaves in the storm wind, as George puts it. And that is what's happening in this scene. The people have stepped outside Plato's cave and seen that Lannister power does not actually indicate the glory of God bestowed upon the rightful rulers of Westeros. This banner is just fabric, and it can be torn apart. Again, George is going full materialist on us here. We have looked behind the curtain and seen that the great and powerful Oz is just a man, and so can be overthrown. This is what the failure of power looks like. When the image of power fails, when the fig leaf of righteousness and consent gives way to fire and blood, the only way power has of sustaining itself is force. 
Joffrey rides right over someone, and Tyrion couldn't even say whether it was man, woman, or child. They are all dehumanized, fully, just a blur of rage and hunger to him. And then suddenly they're inside, the walls rising up reassuringly, crossbowmen guarding their retreat, the noise giving way, the people kept back. But all this power suddenly seems so much more fragile now. There's no going back inside the cave, back into the Matrix. A challenge has been made. How to answer it? And you're going to be really surprised by this, but the Lannisters really don't take the lessons of all of their near-death experiences beyond, wow, the poors are awful angry. Why is that? Now, Tyrion being Tyrion will recognize how unpopular his family is, and he knows it already as he discusses in conversation with Sir Jaslyn Bywater in the latter part of this chapter we'll cover next week. But there's not going to be any meaningful reform introduced by Joffrey, Cersei, and Tyrion. No equitable, ex- no equitable distribution of food that comes into King's Landing, the little that does come in. And this is a big problem for the Lannisters, because when help finally does arrive at the Blackwater, it's in the form of the Tyrells shipping food by wagon load into the city after, of course, they starve the city. I'm just going to bring that up over and over again. The Tyrells then quickly win the love of the commons as Tyrion notes in A Storm of Swords, and Cersei grows paranoid about In a Feast for Crows. So the Lannisters learn nothing, and though the Lannisters still hold King's Landing by the end of A Dance of Dragons, sort of, and there's been no further riot in King's Landing since then, the small folk continue to despise the Lannisters and will shrug them off for the next best thing. Yeah, we're going to see that develop for sure. We already see that kind of develop under the surface with the Sparrow movement and a certain other claimant landing in the Stormlands will give them the opportunity (laughs) to do so. But uh, speaking of things to come later in the series, moving on to foreshadowing and groundwork, Tyrion is continuing to prepare for the Battle of Blackwater just outside the reader's awareness, building winch towers to lower and raise his chain. George, as usual, is just distracting us with so many other things going on in the plot and in Tyrion's inner monologue that the reader is not going to fixate on this as is super important and wonder what's going on, thus preserving the surprise when that chain closes behind the, the Baratheon fleet, the wildfire hits, and the mouth of the Blackwater Rush becomes the mouth of hell, as Davos puts it. I think it's really fun about the chain itself is that we think so far in the narrative that this is going to be used to block Stannis' fleet from entering Blackwater Bay itself. It's almost like the uh, the surprise isn't in like like sort of like a shadow baby. Similarly, the surprise isn't that the chain is going to be used; it's how the chain is actually going mm-hmm. to be used in, in the Battle of the Blackwater, which makes all of the work that Tyrion is putting into this uh, much more effective and a and a great surprise for the reader when we come to the end of a end of, end of a Clash of Kings and the end of the and the really the start of the Battle of Blackwater. It's yeah. Second point. Of, oh, sorry. Go, go ahead. No, I was going to no, say that's you. such a gut punch. Absolutely. But keep going. Yeah. Oh, it's so great. And then second point of foreshadowing grammar because Tyrion is more right than he knows when he says that the Tyrells would rather have Joffrey dead than let him harm Marjorie. And the thing that I was kind of musing about a little bit in this chapter was whether Olena Tyrell was really imagined in George's mind as he's thinking about this or whether he planned for Mace to kind of assume the Olena, Ro- Olena role because we don't really encounter Mace Tyrell at all in the narrative. We know that his son, we know Loras, of course, because he's been in the narrative so far, but Mace doesn't turn up until a storm of swords and he's way overshadowed by his mother who ends up being the one who definitely uh, ensures that Joffrey dies rather than uh, than have sex with Marjorie Tyrell. That's a good question. I think that Tyrells probably just, you know, exists as a vague collective in George's mind. He's thinking more and more, more about them as he goes. He, Who knows if he's hit on Elena yet. You think if, you think if he had, he might be doing some work specifically to build up her and the way he builds up like Mance or Stannis for that mm-hmm. matter or uh, Marwyn the Mage. So I think at this point, as they often are in the narrative itself, they're just kind of a collective, just a, a general rosebush hovering in the background. But I'm sure he's already got in mind that they're going to be the ones ultimately to kill Joffrey. That seems mm-hmm. that seems because we have that built up at the end of the book with the, the hairnet from Dantos, of course. 
So, moving on up into the the discussion section of the episode. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's kind of kind of an open-ended question to pose obviously, and it's not one it's really possible to fully answer. But this chapter I think kind of demands one think about what justice for the Lannisters from the people would really look like and what what would be done if 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 the riot was successful in tearing down everyone in this party and ruling over the Red Keep? What would be next? Are we talking like a game in pale hair 2.0 kind of thing when when there was that that uprising that led to a brief small full control of part of the city at least? If so, how would you kind of protect those gains for the long term? And if not, what would that that model of justice look like? It's a really kind of a tough question to to answer because we saw a version of the justice that the Lancers receive in the form of Tyrion being arrested for falsely killing Joffrey. Joffrey, of course, being murdered kind of hideously, given all the terrible things that he does, and Cersei being marched naked through the streets of King's Landing. That is the justice that the Lannisters receive for the terrible things that they do in the book so far. And of course, Jamie losing his hand too somewhere down the road. But is that actually justice or is that more vengeance being visited upon the Lannisters for what they've done? I think we get a sense from George that what happens to all of the Lannisters, the the, the the punishment doesn't fit the crimes that they've committed and kind of spills out into something that's a bit not good for, for the city of King's Landing and, and of course not good for the characters for sure in the, in the narrative. Now, like I think gaming pale hair and having like the small full control part of the city is an interesting dynamic is something that George explored pretty deftly, I think in, in fire and blood volume one. And I think it's, it's interesting that we have Gaiman pale hair uh, actually surviving all of that. Actually at the end of fire and blood, at the end of the dance of the dragons, he is, uh, he becomes Aegon the third's companion and he is like his only friend. I, I could see that being a, a potential model for justice of having someone being reduced from their their state their status as being a ruler in the city and but still surviving and maintaining a place of kind of honor kind of surviving and in a way and, and continue to eat that seems like a good thing for for a small folk folks for a small folk person to have is to to uh, survive and eat and everything like that but I I, I don't know I, I have a hard time like imagining like what justice actually looks like for the Lannisters and trying to think of it too like in a specifically Westerosi context. It makes it really kind of tough, right? Because I mean, uh, would you want to have all of these Lancers executed the same way that Ned Stark was? I'm not sure if that's also the right move either. What do you think? I'm I'm conflicted in terms of what what the alternate power base for the Lancers should be. Because part of me thinks, you know, again, my my love of of the Brotherhood under Beric. Part of me thinks that they should try to throw off any and all kings at this point, take advantage of the fractured nature of power in Westeros to try to just get rid of that class entirely. And in order to really seize King's, King's Landing for the long term, in order to try to start to accomplish that, you need to get rid of just not the people in the King's Party, but also like everyone Littlefinger is hired. And you need, right. you, need to, you need to take over the means of production in King's Landing long term, not just to feed the people immediately, but to have a power base to draw from when one or more of the kings comes to challenge or control the city. Because, you know, if you, if as what happened with Game and Pale Hair, if you declare yourself free of all the, the claimants, you become the, the enemy of all the claimants, too. So no side, you know, winning over the other is going to be good for your new revolution. And so, and, so, and so another part of me thinks that maybe, you know, using one of the other kings as a vessel and trying to gain some leverage over them is the best move. That declaring for Stannis, because, you know, Stannis, even if he takes King's Landing, is going to have a small army. And maybe trying to, you know, work with him for support or, you know, get, gain some policies out of him in, in return for uh, populist support might be a move, again, just to start with in King's Landing. Or, 
you know, supporting Rob as much as I was making fun of it earlier, he's he's a convenient organizing tool and mm-hmm. some you know, you could potentially use him for like an hour of the wolf situation, which you get Rob to come down to wipe out the people and entrench Power King's landing and set some better policies in place and then just leave. That could be ideal if you managed it properly. Even Renly, we see what a useful organizing principle dead Renly is at the Blackwater, and we see what a useful organizing principle dead Robert is for the Brotherhood. So just say we're doing this in honor of dead Renly, who believes whatever we say he believed, because he's dead and can't contradict us. So we're going to pretend that Renly's whole thing was feeding us, and we're going to organize anything to organize yourself. I think would be really useful in this moment, even if it's kind of bullshit, even if it's another shadow on a wall, whatever gets you to the point of actually taking over the bread of King's Landing and all that goes with it. Because I think that's how you ultimately, you know, because just wiping out the Lannisters is just, you know, in the same way that Arya helped take Harrenhal away from the bloody, away from uh, the Lannister men, away from Amory Lorch, but gave it to Roose Bolton. Yay. (laughs) Oh, good. Now Harrenhal is better. It's not. So you have to confront that question. And I, I so so half of me is is kind of romantically attached to the idea of of declaring you know independence from all the kings at once, and part of me thinks like if you get rid of the Lannisters, if you, you bring shock and all to the status quo, how can you fiendishly cleverishly leverage support for one of the other claimants in order to get what you want? In order in order to just not prevent your revolution from dying out from just one of the other kings coming to get you, you know what I mean? You have to somehow incorporate that. Yeah, and I think it's it's that's see that's. Sounds good to me. I mean, I'm, I'm all aboard <laughs> of having some sort of organizing principles so that people don't starve to death in, in, in King's Landing. It seems like a, a, a generally a societal good. Um, th- I think the issue is, as I think you're putting out, is that it just is not just the Lannisters, right? It's also all of the ruling class of Westeros, from the Baratheons, the Lannisters, even the Starks to some extent, are all benefiting from this system. And they're also the ones that hold the swords in this system as well. So, Game and Palehair's regime lasted not that long because those who had swords and those who had dragons were able to come in and essentially end his pretensions to 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 ruling. And I, I think that there is an aspect to where I mean I'm I'm a I'm a good Republican smaller in that I believe that that monarchy has to go in the long term. And that's one of the aspects of reforming the system of, of having a distribution of political power out from a very small minority of the citizenry and being having it dispensed down to all the parts of the of the citizenry. Again, is that something that's likely going to happen in Westeros? No. I mean, Game of Thrones season eight even had them laughing about this idea of democracy when Samuel Tarley proposes it at that very small council scene at the end of season eight. True. But I do think it, but I, but I think that there's an aspect where a gradual, slow revolution, which introduces democratic principles to Westeros and eventually it leads to a better, more equitable distribution of goods and services and especially food would be for the betterment of the realm. Um, and that just doesn't mean just lopping off the heads of every single Lannister as well, because there's always going to be another ruling class that will take over, as we are going to find out very quickly here as Stannis attempts it. And then likely Aegon the Sixth and the Golden Company will then be the ones who be the inheritors of the small folk rage and, the support, and gain the support of the Sparrows. But are they actually going to be better than the Lannisters? They probably won't have the time really to distinguish themselves, given that Daenerys is coming right after them. But true, probably not. But yeah, I mean, it's part of, part of me thinks like you need you need a smash and grab at the start of that process to convince the powerful you're serious. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the small folk need to. If there's going to be any kind of bargaining position, if that's ever really going to happen, 
the small folk need to do so from a position of relative power, and I think that's something the High Sparrow, although I don't, I don't agree with him on everything, I think that's something he understands. Like, before we even get to the table, you need to know we mean business. And, you know, the, the small folk occupying King's Landing, even temporarily, I think is a way to make that clear, and maybe that would send a signal to Stannis that, okay, I do need to, maybe I'm not giving yeah. up all my rights and privileges, but I need to guarantee bread. Even if it's not... You know, democratic reforms might be farther off than just a food guarantee. You know what I mean? Sure. Like even just like a more equitable sharing of resources, even if political power stays the same, like we we guarantee every citizen King's Landing gets this much bread every day. That that might be within reach with a kindlier monarch than the Lannisters, and that might be that might be a a springboard for further reforms because like like I was saying, hunger is a great spark for rebellion, but hungry people it's just hard to come up with plans and reforms and new government associations when like you don't have any meals in your stomach. Like you just, you can't do it. So I think achieving that groundwork, I think is something that, that might be, might be more realistic than, than really breaking down the government. But I think a lot of that would go, would go hand in hand. And I just, I don't, I don't think any of that is yeah forthcoming within the series, but it's an interesting thought experiment just because this is one of the chapters in the series where, where mm-hmm. possibilities like that kind of, kind of coalesce and just you, you glimpse them just in passing, if you know what I mean. I do. I do know what you mean. You can see the potential for a better system emerging, even amidst all of this violence, all of this justified violence. And uh, we can, Hope at, at some level, hundreds of years down the road for Westeros, that they have a better system than the one they have now. It's not looking good, though, for this series, though, unfortunately. Well, there's that quote from Middlemarch that, you know, that so much of what we enjoy now is, you know, due to the labors of people who led hidden lives who aren't remembered. And I could see that being part of, you know, the history of Westeros, that if people of King's Landing have, you know, are politically organized in a way that brings them better lives years down the road. Maybe they will, maybe the seeds were sown from that without anyone even knowing it. And just the, you know, the process of time moves forward. And and I could absolutely see that, even if it doesn't come through, come through now. And we're going to, of course, talk much more next week about how it doesn't, doesn't quite come true. (laughs) I am very much looking forward to next week as we talk about the butcher's bill from this this event in King's Landing and what it means for the long term for the Lancers and especially when we get to Tyrek and Varas and everything like that's going to be a whole lot of fun and I think that about wraps us up for this analysis on the Clash of Kings Tyrion 9 part 1 as always thank you so much for listening and thank you to our patrons for supporting us if you all have the chance please rate and view us on Apple Podcasts Google Play SoundCloud Podbean Spotify anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast A-S-O-Y-A-F you can follow us on Twitter at not- Notacast ASOIAF or shoot us an email at notacast ASOIAF at gmail.com. You can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter or at portquentin.com. And you can find me at Brendan Beefish on Twitter, Brendan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics, Vice and Fire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our High Lords and Ladies on Patreon Red Ralu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Marybolt, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson. Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal. Sir Thomas, the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood. Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill. Sir Way, of course. Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore. Lord Mark Connington, heir to Griffin's Roost. Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens. Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Setsum Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and the Morgan. Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping. Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies. Septon Murrifull, Head of Hair. Lady Silverwing, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State. Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, 
and Ryan Noy, Forger of the Mighty Hammer and Keeper of the King's Anvil. Thank you so much, as always, to our High Lords and Ladies. Yeah, thank you very much for all your support. It means a lot to us. Again, just hitting a thousand patrons was, was very gratifying, and thank you very, very much. So, join us next week for part two of this chapter of Clash of Kings Tyrion United, which Tyrion slaps Joffrey, Sanders saves Sansa, and the Lannisters barely hold a city that fucking hates them. It's going to be so much fun. As much as I enjoyed going through this part of the chapter with you, sir, I think that I think the second part of the chapter is even more depthful than, than the riot itself. It's so much fun. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. We'll see you guys next week.